You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This, this, this is this, The Hour. You're listening to The Hour. This is The Hour with Resident Advisor. Hello and welcome to the second edition of The Hour. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. So The Hour is our new podcast. We'll be putting one of these out each month as part of the exchange. And you can expect a blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews, and lots of other things besides. Before we get started, we'd like to take a moment to reflect on the shooting at Pulse in Orlando. Such horrible events are rarely relevant to what we cover here on RA, and thankfully so, but this one hit close to home. Pulse reminds us what it is that makes some of these clubs so special. More than just a place to have fun, it was a space where queer men and women could lose themselves in music among friends and lovers, free from the prejudices outside its walls. That this safe space should become a scene of uh, such unthinkable violence is another reminder that even today, many of us remain unsafe simply because of who we love. We'd like to dedicate this episode of the hour to the 49 victims of the shooting, to their loved ones and the LGBT community around the world, to whom we owe this culture, which RA is so lucky to be a part of. Today's show, Aaron Coultate spends time in one of London's best record shops. We ask five people what they think the biggest challenge facing the dance music industry is, and I'm going to be talking about the end of a trance club and a feature that never was. But first up, Max Pearl, RA's New York staff writer, went to Detroit's Movement Festival for the first time late last month. And while he was in town, he spoke with one of the festival's directors, Jason Havera. They looked back on the last 10 years of the festival and talked about the recent signs that Detroit might be finally bouncing back after years of economic hardship. You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. So I'm here in Detroit for my first ever movement festival. Uh, I've been in for two nights already and I've been to four or five opening parties in some pretty strange venues. Uh, there was a goth club inside of this grand old hotel with the paint peeling off of the walls in the lobby. Then there was a noise show at this gay bar off of a highway that had a BDSM dungeon in the back. The RA event last night was in this outdoor dance spot called TV Lounge, which is one of the key venues for techno here. It was only a few blocks from downtown, and yet you had 500 people dancing the house music until 4 a.m., which I think says a lot about the city. That kind of thing would never even get off the ground in places like New York or London. So I'm standing in Hart Plaza, which is smack dab in the middle of downtown Detroit, and I'm surrounded by all of these big Art Deco skyscrapers. On the other bank of the river, you can see Ontario, Canada, and then there's this iconic Renaissance Center, which are these three huge towers owned by the car manufacturer, General Motors. There are six stages, and the crowd is extremely mixed. You've got these techno types wearing all black with the combat boots, and you've got candy kids wearing tank tops with slogans on them. The downtown area is shiny and well-groomed and busy with people. If you find yourself in conversation with a local, they will tell you that it's a symbol of Detroit bounding back from its very well-documented rock bottom. So movement is sort of the holy grail of electronic music festivals here in the US. The three-day event has become a huge part of Detroit's identity and it's very much about local traditions. There are international headliners, you know, like Kraftwerk is here doing their live 3D show and Mode Selector is going to play tomorrow night, but it's just as much about showing the rest of the world what Detroit artists have built here over the last 30 years or so. The festival has always been led by the artists themselves. It even had Carl Craig and Kevin Saunderson as directors at different points in the early years. When you're here, it definitely feels like you're on their home turf. So there's all these pre-parties and opening parties and after parties and movement itself definitely gets behind those events as well. 
but the main event is here in downtown, where it's been taking place in one form or another since the year 2000. So I'm on my way to meet Jason, who is one of the directors of the festival. Um, I want to get a sense of movement's history and its roots and hear about some of the ups and downs they've had over the last 10 years. My name is Jason Huvar with Paxahow Events, and I'm the festival director for the Movement Detroit Electronic Music Festival. This is the 10th anniversary, I think, of Paxahow's involvement with Movement. How do you feel? Um, we feel great. Uh, we were actually involved in 2005 with Kevin Saunderson. We produced a stage downstairs uh, the first year this was a ticketed event, and that gave us the opportunity to kind of see a little bit more about uh, how the inner workings uh, you know, we're, we're, we're working and, and what areas we may be able to help with a little bit more in the future. And then in 2006, uh, you know, Kevin sort of handed over the reins and, and we proposed to the city and, and a, a private management. And after a, a lot of discussions, we were ultimately granted, uh, you know, permission to kind of do it our way. We come from a background of doing parties in the city for a long time, so we wanted to apply some of that experience to uh, the festival model. And, you know, 10 years later, uh, we've produced 11 of these festivals here in this park, and uh, we still have the same staff, and the festival keeps growing, and uh, overall we've had tremendous success with, uh, you know, visitors and experience, and uh, we feel great. Couldn't, couldn't be happier to host this event here in Detroit. What's changed since 2006? Well, in 2006, when we first started to put a mass level of production on here and brought it up to five stages a lot of people were working here for the first time and this venue is incredibly unique its history goes back to the late 70s it was designed by Osama Noguchi as a civic park and was not originally intended you know for this kind of an event Festivals didn't exist back then. They certainly didn't require the kind of power that we require, and they, they certainly were not designed for the, the number of people that, that attend the festival. So every year we find a, a new angle or a new area that we can improve upon or we get to know a little bit better. And because of the venue's unique shape, uh, which ultimately creates the ambience here at the festival, every single layer of production, especially stage placement, uh, sound direction, um, hospitality, uh, you know, art installations all have to be meticulously thought about throughout the course of the year. We come down here and do measurements constantly. Uh, thanks to tools like Google Earth, uh, we're able to use some measurements and overlays and, and continuously try to create the most amount of space possible with the, with the best experience you know, as the festival audience grows. So you know, over the last 10 years, what has changed is a series of improvements that relate to both the production and, and layout and atmosphere of Hart Plaza. I'd be curious though, like also culturally, like what's changed? Like is there a new generation of people? Is there like a, a visible shift in the culture? Like, I mean, you've seen so many different waves happen, I imagine, right? Yeah, the biggest shift that we've seen here is really more or less the increase in attendance from people that are becoming electronic fans uh, more recently because of the uh, popularity of the music, the internet, and what's happening in the city of Detroit. When we first started doing parties, they were relatively all underground parties. You know, they would do between, you know, three and seven hundred people in abandoned buildings, warehouses, car washes, dance halls, and ultimately moved into the club circuit in the late 90s. And we were sort of broadcasting the sound of Detroit back then, you know, through the clubs, and then as the festival began to evolve, these people sort of had a, a place to go once a year, almost like a techno mecca, if you will. And when we first started to produce the festival, it was, it was very much full of diehard fans that had been building in anticipation, ultimately, to get to this kind of a destination, where now you see, uh, and I'm speaking of the evolution of the last 10 years, now you see an, a, a much larger number of fans that have either learned about the music through the festival and their experiences here or throughout their other, you know, 
journeys in life, whether it be seeking out music online or whether it be a number of shows that they've seen because of the increase in popularity, you know, there's much more electronic music to be heard in almost every market. To give you an example, we used to do about 15 shows a year in Detroit. Last year, we promoted over 45 shows in the city. So there's just more good music readily available and that is what is ultimately increasing the awareness and we try to create as you know as much as we can an environment that really showcases this music in in an incredible format that you can't get anywhere else Paxahouse stepped in in 2006 to manage the festival and I imagine it was a pretty tumultuous environment at the time like I know there was some drama going on with changing hands and um, was that like a tense climate for you to step into? Yeah it was a very intense climate for a number of reasons um, most importantly the festival had financially collapsed you know many years in a row and this was an incredible challenge that that, that we had to make some very big decisions about whether or not we wanted to step into that realm and, and offer our assistance and propose our management. The, the previous festival versions, you know, a lot of people don't realize were ultimately a, a city event that had become um, about the culture very, very swiftly. There were no blueprints for these festivals back then. Uh, there, were, there was nothing else to really compare them to other than some versions of what some people had seen in Europe. There, were, there was no set of rules, there was no set of contractors, there was no set of permits, there was no set of, of, of uh, diagrams or models about how to make this a success. So when we stepped in, we had a lot of challenges ahead of us that really required an absolute focus and something that we knew was going to be an all-year-round job right away. So what we did is, is we stayed very focused and we applied our, our model of how we were producing smaller events to this larger event. Uh, by example, if we did a, a one-stage event and we had a specific set of rules for that, we just used that micro example to create a macro model. So it was very complicated. Uh, it was incredibly stressful, but ultimately it, it, it worked. And uh, every year, like I said, we try to take as many notes as we can and, and, and learn from as many challenges as we can to continue to improve the festival you know, year after year to maintain our status as a world-class techno festival from the you know, birthplace of techno. So I'm curious to talk about Detroit itself. The buzzword on everyone's lips is like the rebound. Detroit is rebounding from its uh, rock bottom or whatever. What does that look like to you? Like, what does that mean? Well, we've had a, you know, a ringside seat for this entire evolution. When we first started producing events here, Detroit was a desert. I mean, it was over 75% vacancy. There were very few businesses in the downtown corridor. There was just a, 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 a feeling that was beyond despair. Despair had already happened. This was what happens after despair. It was just empty. And through the courage and generosity and the vision of uh, some very specific work groups that forged uh, an alliance with other businesses and developers and cultural ambassadors, the process slowly began uh, almost in parallel with our management of the festival. So in 2006, I was part of a work group called Detroit Renaissance, which had a six-arm program that, that was basically a platform to drive as much development and progress as possible into the area. And our speciality was obviously the creative corridor and ultimately the side effect of what we do is tourism. So we worked very hard to stay above board and to do what we could with this festival in those respects. And the rest of the year, we you know, host artists and buy tours that are traveling the world and put them in as many clubs and bars as we can. So, especially over the last four years, we have seen a complete turnaround in confidence with individuals and businesses investing in the city of Detroit. We've had a lot of larger businesses move thousands and thousands of people into the city, which is what the city 
desperately needed. So you can take a walk through town now at lunch or at nighttime and on every single block find a place to stop and either be entertained or find a, a, a retailer or a service or food or just there's something everywhere now where when we first began there was literally nothing. Uh, just a few staples that have, that have survived uh, you know, all of Detroit's history. So I think that it's, uh, it's incredibly well timed. I, I love that the festival has kind of run parallel to this development, but we've been promoting this city our whole lives and getting to a point where you know, the city is now finding this much deserved stability. It's a great time to be alive in a part of the city of Detroit. What's your booking process like? Our booking process, again, is, is fairly complicated because we book all year round. We do not wait to a specific date to start reaching out to people or, or responding to people. We take notes during each festival about what's working and what seems to be the direction or um, sort of the upcoming artists that, that we are seeing now on one stage that we know next year will fit a bigger stage. So our booking process is very democratic. We listen to everybody. We listen to our fans. We listen to the local artist community. But we also have a team of 11 people that discuss artist selection together twice a week so once the festival is over we usually take a big breath and review and then once the Ibiza season begins we begin to travel and talk to agents and artists about the next year in Detroit so we start programming everything in you know August September and we start confirming you know from October through February so we work on it all year round obviously the bread and butter of movement is house and techno but it seems every year you make room for kind of emerging styles and genres. Is that something that you, you really try and keep open? Absolutely, because like we had mentioned earlier, we have six stages, we have 36 hours of programming, and electronic music has always been the backbone of our work, and house and techno will always be the soul, but there are so many new artists developing sounds that emerged from or were inspired by house and techno that it's it's always a very interesting thing to see what artists are doing and you know although we never really follow any sort of mainstream you know Vegas style programming we still look at a lot of up-and-comers as being relevant because they're writing the future and the wonderful thing about electronic music is it moves at the same pace as technology. So as a new instrument you know, gets developed, there's going to be a new artist that finds an angle of that instrument that someone else didn't. And that's what's creating all these new genres. And you know, as long as there's a, you know, a, you know, a, a shared interest in the evolution of electronic music and a shared respect in Detroit and what Detroit has to offer, it's our pleasure to host those kind of showcases and, and, and share different ideas with the audience every year. Speaking of that, I'm interested in how you guys did or did not navigate the EDM wave that hit a few years ago. In a lot of ways, that's done some great things for Detroit and for techno because the more people are aware of electronic music, the more they become aware of all the subgenres and all the different kinds of music that exist and all the different artists that, you know, come from different angles and then they ultimately start studying the, the history and the sound. So overall, it was, I mean, it was interesting and there are some parts of it that a lot of people kind of rolled their eyes at, but in truth, it brought human consciousness to a completely different level and awareness of electronic music as a whole and we do our part to you know kind of stand our ground and, and maintain the authenticity that Detroit has to offer. first time at Movement and I imagine if you're coming to Movement you think that there must be like a crazy party every single night of the week um, and it's just non-stop but 
that's just movement week. What's the rest of the year like? We do a show almost every week. They are obviously not on the same scale as movement weekend. This is a very uh, special time of year that the rest of the year kind of revolves around. But Detroit has some great venues and some great sound systems. And, you know, we, we pick up a lot of the, the tours, uh, especially in the fall and winter. And Detroit has uh, some of the best parties in the world. And they are smaller than you're, you're going to experience in some of the other larger cities, but that's one of the things that makes them so special. Um, you know, the dance floors in Detroit, I, I would put up against any any place in the world. Yeah, it's funny. A friend of mine who's, who lives here was telling me, like, okay, so there's 600,000 people in the city, and then of that, there's 20,000 hip young people who are into music, and then of that, there's, like, 500 who are into techno and so he was saying like you kind of see a lot of the same people and it feels like a really tight-knit community Is that something that you like? Is it like a small and scrappy scene? It used to be a little bit more like that the last couple years have changed a lot I would definitely still call it a tight-knit community But we're starting to see many more techno fans that are coming to our events throughout the course of the year That are part of this new wave happening in, in Detroit right now and I think a lot of that has to do with the atmosphere and being able to share the music properly and the right sound system in the right room. But, um, you know, overall, yes, it is, a, it is a tight community. But I feel that there are more new people and, and fresh energy in the last couple of years than, the, than there's ever been. Logistically speaking, has it been a learning curve scaling up? Yeah, we have learning moments every year. Um, we're dealing with incredibly large sound systems and we're dealing with a 14-acre park with six stages. So uh, sound direction and engineering is key. So, you know, we work with uh, people that are best in their class and every year when it comes to, you know, creating the atmosphere, especially to do with the sound, we have to dial it in and sharpen it, you know, more and more, which has been uh, working quite well for us we have great partners everything that we had mentioned before about the footprint of the festival and in order to accommodate the uptick in, in attendance every year also has to get adjusted but like some of the other departments we do not treat any aspect of this festival as a part-time job so we we discuss it and work on it and make decisions based on our lessons all year round and uh, we're dealing with a, a really incredible park here, and what we've been able to do with it is, is very unique. And so we were talking about tourism earlier. Do you think movement has really contributed to the city's image? There's no question. I think that the Movement Electronic Music Festival is one of Detroit's best uh, tourist attractions, if you will, and I think that the people that come here uh, from around the world come here for this festival specifically and has really helped upheld uh, Detroit's reputation for being an electronic music uh, inspiration and, and really helps set the tone for the rest of the world. Movement has always been sort of like an artist-led festival, even, you know, you've had some of the great techno DJs actually in like directorial roles. Is that still the case today? We work with all the artists directly, not just locally, but also the people that come in here to visit. And if you will take some time to notice throughout the weekend one of the unique things about this festival is you'll see an artist that plays on Friday or Saturday still here on Tuesday morning and we create an environment for artists here to co-mingle and co you know uh, you know work on projects that they will take with them the rest of the year so we're trying to do that to not only maintain the integrity of the music structure, but also allow the artists to really drive what the sound is, especially when we have different themes for different stages. And we work with all the artists that were ever part of this festival in the, in the, in the past, but Detroit has hundreds of artists, all of which have provided some level of influence. And we, again, discuss things with them all year round and look forward to these interactions that we all have with each other over these three days because they inspire ideas that, that we carry with us the rest of the year and, and into the next festival. You're listening to The Hour on Resident Advisor. Over the Counter is one of our regular features on The Hour. Each time we get to know some of the people behind dance music's favorite record shops. For this edition, RA's news editor, Aaron Coultate, took a walk up Stoke Newington Road in London to meet Jason Spinks, who runs Christina Records. The shop may only be small, but its importance among the area's dance music community really can't be overstated. This is The Hour. 
from Resident Advisor. I'm walking up Stoke Newington Road towards Christina Records, a shop that sells new and used vinyl. Its home is a bustling corner of Dalston that also includes venues like The Nest and Birthdays and FS Snooker Club. A bit further south is the NTS Studio and if you're into buying records, there's also LNCC and Eldica nearby. I first visited Christina in 2011, not long after it opened. It's located quite close to the resident advisor office, so sometimes I'll buy a record on the Christina website and then walk up here to the shop to pick it up in person. Anyone who shops here regularly will know the owner, Jason Spinks. Uh, I'm going to pop in now and have a chat to Jason about what it's like running a record shop in 2016. Hey guys, how are you? Hey, hey how are you doing? So Jason, the shop's been here since 2011. Yeah. Um, how has this little strip of Stoke Newington Road changed since you guys moved in? Um, quite a bit, I'd say, yeah. I guess when we opened here, there was quite a lot happening in terms of like nightlife and there wasn't much retail, but there was lots of bars and clubs and a lot of parties happening and, and there was a sort of energy and a vibrancy. I think that f for a lot of reasons, there's some of that energy that was there in terms of maybe musicians and, and DJs and people living here and working around here has maybe been lost a bit. How have you noticed the kind of the clientele in terms of um, customers that come into the shop? Has that has that been a noticeable change as well as the areas become say more expensive? Um, I think so. Yeah, I think as as we've sort of established ourselves, we've I think more people make this as destination. So you get people who are visiting London coming in, maybe more so now. And you've kind of got a trail of East London record shops now coming up from Hackney Road. Um, and you can kind of do, you can either go from us down or they're, or they're up. And so you get people who are doing kind of, you know, Cosmos and, and then Love Vinyl and those kind of shops and they're coming up here. So there's a bit more of a kind of East London destination for people who are, who are into vinyl and into music and stuff like that. Were there any other shops here when, when you opened? I guess LNCC was a, opened around a similar time. Yeah, LNCC was, I mean there was a lot going on, LNCC was opening, although that's changed now, you know, and uh, you know NTS had just started up as well, um, Pelicans and Parrots next door which is not it's not a music shop, but it's kind of, you know, it's kind of cultural and, and it's trying to do something a bit different in retail and, you know, it's quite niche and specialist. So it's on that, you know, we share the same kind of ethos in what we do and that opened as well. And um, yeah, it seems to be a lot, a lot uh, sort of more opening. I think um, a lot of shops have opened since we opened, you know, there's sort of Peckham has got a group of shops there and Love Vinyls opened in Shoreditch and Cosmos like I said. So yeah it, it feels good like I think the scene is quite healthy you know there's a lot of competition which is hard and you have to adapt to that as a business all the time. How did you go about building the profile of the shop you know when, from, from when you first opened? Um, we had a strong idea I mean just to start with I opened the shop with two friends and former colleagues of mine who we used to work in another record shop and um, we kind of decided that there was a kind of a space in the market where you know for a sort of more curated sort of vinyl shop where it was sort of had a bit of space and it wasn't sort of full of dusty dark sort of corners and piles of records everywhere and you know we wanted to have quite neat sections and we wanted the space to be bright welcoming for sort of females and a, a bit more of a sort of a less sort of macho masculine environment you know and uh, obviously the interior design and things like that so that was kind of part of the brand and we wanted to open and um, be quite distinctive in that way. Our main thing that we do is kind of we try and push new music and it's quite sort of more underground and niche stuff. When you first started uh did you, I don't know if there was a website at all or it was a fairly simple blog. Now you can yeah. sort of buy orders um, online from Christina and I often do that. I'll, I'll buy it online then walk up to the shop and pick it up. Yeah. Um, do you feel that's kind of 
like how big a percentage of, of your overall sales now actually happen yeah online? that's that's a big thing and I think a lot of people whether they buy it online or or they use the website as a reference you know whether they buy it and come and pick it up or whether they have a look to see before they come you know a lot of people come in with an idea of what we have because they kind of check the website and things like that when we opened we were really a second-hand shop that did some new releases and now we're kind of a new release shop that does some second-hand although been trying over the last six months to sort of readdress that a little bit because part of the ethos of the shop when we started it was that you'd, people would come in and whether they were after new music they might leave with something old that, that could reference something else that they bought or they could just open up to a new artist that they could discover or something so it's kind of cool when people kind of you know are buying something from the second hand racks something some new release you know that's kind of what I want to see happening more so it's important for me to have the kind of the, the second hand stock kind of in the shop as well. How do you actually go about curating a record shop and deciding what goes on the shelves? Yeah, I guess part of it is just having maybe an ear, listening to music for a long time, knowing labels and stuff and you know the shop I used to work in we'd always be making sections and you'd get handed a big pile of sleeves and they'd say put you know go and put them out in the racks and you'd stand there a bit clueless with all these kind of different sections it's like where does this go it'd take you a long time and you'd make mistakes but I guess that was the sort of foundation of learning about records and sort of curating in a way and trying to link things together and just sort of deciding how to place things and, and, and yeah I guess this kind of um, you've just got the, the general stock um, in the kind of in the bins yeah. that's kind of the first level and then you've got two walls of like you know sort of pretty looking LPs and, and yeah. stuff like that things sell things move so you have to kind of keep it updated and, and make sure that there's spaces are filled and things but we felt as though vinyl is a kind of uh, a visual and sort of tactile thing as well. We wanted to give space for the artwork and the actual records to sort of be like visually well represented, you know, so we don't like to cram records in, you know, like some shops you'll see every space that's just filled with something, you know, and uh, clutter's kind of not something I wanted to have. And what, what records are kind of flying off the shelves at the moment? Um, I'd say recently they have literally just flown off the shelf, they're sold out, but we had a couple of represses in from a label called Slow Life, which is a label that we've worked with on distribution uh, from the beginning of their, I think they started in probably 2013. And um, yeah, that's been like, I mean, it's great music. The main producer, S. Moreira, makes really, he's a really talented guy. Um, yeah, they've literally. I mean, flown off the mail order as well, side of things. Um, I'd say recently in, we've got another, this record by Josh Brent, which um, is, it actually came out in 2001 in a really limited run. He records under the name Shah Tracks as well, which is better known as. And uh, yeah, that's been doing, we got that in last week and it's sort of, quite a limited run for, for sort of, I think I think they're doing it as a shop only kind of thing. I don't think they're selling it to online shops. So um, yeah, that's been doing well. Um, the record above that as well, Tommy Vicari Jr., which is a record that actually came out last year. It's been out a while, but we've kind of worked with the label and um, we're not the exclusive distributor, but we've, you know, we've, We've, we've been distributing some copies and it's been selling really well in the shop. Uh, we had uh, Seth Troxler and Omar S in a couple of weeks ago and they both, you know, they both bought it uh, as well, which is a good, pretty good, a pretty good sign. So yeah, it's been Should we pop that one on? Or? Yeah, sure, yeah.
so as you were saying before, uh, you do some of the distribution for, for Slow Life. Um, when did you actually get the distribution side of Christine up and running and, and why did you decide to do it? Um, I guess we saw, I guess if you look at kind of like um, sort of recent shops in recent times, like smaller shops, and we kind of were inspired by shops like Honest John's or Rush Hour and Clone and stuff like that. So, you know, they all, I think you can't just be, it's hard to be just a record shop these days, especially if you're a smaller, you know, we are, you know, we're not in the centre of town, you know, we are, we are a, a local business in a way in many respects. Um, and, you know, it's, it's kind of, I guess, it's important to have, you know, have that arm of it as well when you kind of look at them and that's what they do and they have a shop and they have a distribution and they, you know, whilst they might not be, I mean, certainly Honest John's isn't a huge distributor, but it's very distinctive, the, the, the kind of things that they do, you know. Um, so that was a kind of inspiration and it's also cool to work with people who are local as well, you know, it's like, um, we had, we distribute a label called Odd Music, artist called Odd, and literally that came about from them coming in with their first pressing of their records to kind of, you know, play to us. They pressed 100 copies on white vinyl and just came in and, and I said, you know, they wanted us to buy it for the shop and I said, how many have you got? And they were like, pressed 100, we've got 85 left. And I, I sort of said, I'll take, we'll take all of them. And, um, you know, that's really cool to work with people. We're still working with them now. I think the shop and the distribution tie in quite well. I guess it helps develop the identity of the shop as well. Like you, you kind of become associated with the labels that you distribute in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and it gives you a bit more, you know, like I say, it gives you a bit more recognition maybe internationally, you know? And over the years, have you sort of built like a, I guess a loyal customer base. Have you got like shop regulars that that come in like sort of clockwork or? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, we've got DJs who who drop in and you know Arnaldo. He used to be a regular of ours before we moved to Berlin. He came in for the first time in a while because he was visiting London. And just hung out. He would be guaranteed to be here kind of like every Sunday usually when he was living just up the road in Stoke Newington. Seth Troxler pops his head in like every now and again and you know he's a really cool entertaining guy and it's 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 nice to have people like that in as well you know. You've had some pretty excellent in-store gigs here yeah is that something that you're gonna continue doing do you see that as an important part of of running a shop these days? It seems like there's there, it, there is a sort of requisite of, of having a record shop is to have loads of like in-stores and stuff. And it is it is really cool. We probably do less than we used to. We've got one on the 1st of April with a launch party for uh, a new label called Open, which also do a night. Uh, it's uh, Fraser Campbell, his first record on Open Records. And then we've got uh, Rod Modell from Deep Chords doing one in May as well which would be pretty cool. I remember a pretty uh, excellent one with Andres. Yeah, that's the legendary one that everyone talks about, yeah. yeah. You, you were there that night? I was here, yeah, it was great. Yeah. How did it end up? Uh, pretty cool, like, you know, finished about half 12, 1 a.m. It was definitely the latest finishing in-store we had, yeah. Um, he played for like six hours. And like, we've had DJ Q, that was really cool. Uh, Hooney was brilliant as well. He played, he was like playing at Corsica Studios and he left, He was his flight was late and that's what I mean, it's really cool when guys really make the effort to come down because obviously we don't pay them and they're just doing it because they want to play some records and it's quite cool so he he came down at like, got here at like 10.30 straight from Heathrow to do an in-store before he went to the club, you know, and yeah, it was, it was really good. So what uh, is the rest of 2016 looking like for you? Um, yeah, so we want to sort of expand the distribution side. Um, we're kind of always looking for new exciting labels to work with, getting more quality secondhand stock in and kind of sourcing exciting records and things like that. I also, every year I say I'm going to start a record label, uh, so maybe, <laughs> maybe that will happen this year.
Still to come on the hour, I'll be talking about the golden era of trance in the UK. But first, it's time for this month's one question. We asked five people from across dance music the same topical question, which this month is, what is the biggest challenge that is currently facing the dance music industry? First up is DJ and producer George Fitzgerald. So for me, the biggest challenge facing the dance music community right now is to do with the age of dance music and um, how long we've had house and techno. You know, I've seen creepingly over the last few years that crowds at a lot of the events that I play at, the festivals, all the clubs, are just getting a little bit older and aren't necessarily being replaced or re renewed in any way. And I think the two things to address really are the kind of vicious orthodoxy that you have when it comes to the sonics of house and techno. There is so much good, new, interesting house and techno being written, but I think it gets obscured for this second reason, which is that the people headlining clubs all around Europe and all around the world and probably the worst example is in Ibiza, are pretty much exclusively men in their 40s and 50s, usually white men. These acts maintain their status as big headliners by playing big gigs. It's very hard for a lot of acts who are a lot younger to, to get past that bottleneck, I think. And I question whether that's going to choke off some of the some of the kind of new diversity in the scene. You know, ultimately these older guys represent a previous generation. And without sounding hypocritical, I think young people see far more diversity, gender diversity, racial diversity, sexual diversity in pop music even, and certainly in other art forms. I think Promoters, artists, websites, right across the board, we can't really expect to appeal to a new crowd of people who are ultimately going to be buying the tickets, buying the records, if we don't reflect the world around them in, in, a, in a way that other art forms are doing. Fallon McWilliams, director at Hustle PR. Lack of integrity. Um, I've seen a lot of people I love and respect start out as authentic artists and completely lose the plot for money or fame lifestyle goals, whatever you want to call it. The funny thing is that most of the people you see that cross that bridge over to the other side that actually end up, quote, making it, realize that there's not much for them on the other side except for, you know, a bunch of corporate um, vampire industry type people pushing them to do really cringe shit for more money and, you know, you're playing these big room parties for vacuous clubbers that are <laughs> more concerned about taking drugs and wearing cool clothes and listening to your already like musically compromised DJ set. I think probably the deeper root of this problem is the fact that the entire industry has suffered at the hands of the internet and a lot of people struggle to live solely off their craft these days. So, you know, there comes a point where you have to kind of make that sacrifice one way or the other. And um, I think this is where integrity plays a really big role. Saoirse Ryan. RA's head of tickets. One of the biggest dangers that's facing dance music is the monopolization of artists and a kind of capitalist model. You have these kind of major franchise promoters that are coming in, uh, they have a lot of money. Uh, it's similar in regards to what a you know a Tesco or a Walmart can do. They come in, they outbid these kind of local and smaller independents and that then becomes the expectation with regards to the fees that are being paid and the promoters who got into the game, I guess for the right reasons, as passion projects, they, they can't compete with that anymore. And um, I think it's quite easy to tell when you walk into an event these days uh, what that party is about. So it's a real shame because um, those are the events that have sometimes the best energy and um, the intimacy that makes it very very special and I think the question then lies whose responsibility it is who, who takes responsibility and my theory is that everybody kind of needs to be involved you know people just need to work together more because there could be a bubble that bursts. Here's Sven von Thulen, Berlin DJ and co-author of techno history book De Klang der Familie. People in dance music need to make a decision what they want dance music to be, you know, as a culture, do they want to be part of the entertainment industry, like full on with everything that entails, or do they want to go a different way? There will always be the small club, which is a safe haven, and like all that stuff will probably always be there in one way or another. The bigger picture right now, I think the, the success of 
I don't want to say commercialization, but like the success of the whole thing and the like how homogenous and gentrified the whole thing is puts a lot of things at risk that were always very important for dance music. I mean, it's definitely not a subculture anymore, so it's part of, it's a culture. Clubbing is definitely uh, an activity that is part of mainstream culture, but it has roots in different things and there was a necessity for dance music. It doesn't come out of nowhere. People in dance music have to, you know, figure out again what the necessity of dance music is. Why? Why do we need that? And Laura Martin from Red Bull Music Academy. One of the biggest challenges facing the dance music community at the moment is the lack of understanding by local authorities within cities like London about the benefits of clubs rather than the drawbacks. Much like how cities like Amsterdam and Berlin have appointed officials to look after the respective clubbing scenes and create new music that gives the city an identity, most view clubs as a nuisance that get in the way of big money development and in neighbourhoods that are gentrifying. If we can shift the media perspective on how important clubs are as cultural institutions and make the government understand them on our terms, then the smaller clubs and the DIY parties that make up the core of our scene, rather than the bougie and sterile dance music experiences of big money clubs that can actually afford to fight developers and the government against threats of closure, we can actually survive and keep this music as close to the people as possible. To wrap up the final part of this month's hour, I pulled RA's news editor, Aaron Coultate, into the studio to tell him about a feature that I desperately wanted to write, but didn't. The piece would have been about the Birmingham Trance Club, God's Kitchen, which recently threw its last ever party. Uh, this is very significant for me because back in around 2001, uh, God's Kitchen was the first ever dance music event I went to. So I told Aaron about clubbing in the Midlands back in those days, and we thought a bit about the idea of developing tastes in the context of dance music. So you've been talking about this piece for a couple of years, and uh, now you're telling me that it's collapsed. Before we hear your excuses, when and why did you decide to write this thing? I think it was uh, the beginning of 2014 and I'd noticed that God's Kitchen had an event called Clash of the Gods coming up at the Rainbow Warehouses in Birmingham. Uh, I believe they'd had a period of inactivity and the event was being billed as um, like their big return. So the concept was a lineup entirely made up of back-to-back -back sets, um, something like 40 DJs, uh, three rooms, kind of a classic drum and bass rave vibe. Uh, anyway, to begin with, I'm just thinking to myself, uh, what would that be like? Um, it'd probably been over 10 years since I'd been to a God's Kitchen event, and it's certainly been a long time since I've been to a trance party, which is uh, the sound that God's Kitchen is known for. So um, I decided I wanted to go, and then I'm thinking, well, if I'm going to go, uh, it's certainly not going to be boring, uh, no matter what I think about it and there'll be presumably many different emotions that will be stirred up by this, so uh, why don't I write something about it? Okay, so you've sort of resolved to write something about God's Kitchen. Um, in your mind at that point, what did you think the piece would look like? Um, I thought it'd be fun to retrace my steps, um, you know, go to some of the same bars in my hometown, uh, drink the same bad drinks, uh, go with some of the same people, get the train to Birmingham at the same time, just generally get the same buzz on. I uh, reached out to a couple of friends who I haven't seen for probably a decade and uh, unfortunately nobody got back to me. <laughs> Ouch, uh, shame. <laughs> Would have been nice if they responded, but you know, there we go. Um, you should probably tell us at this point what actually happened to the piece. So yeah, I went to the event I mentioned, I had a great time, I got a decent amount of material but I wasn't entirely happy with everything I got so I decided that I'd go back at a later stage. So the events were running uh, fairly infrequently and they kept passing me by without being able to, to get to one. And then it was announced that the final God's Kitchen was going to be taking place on June 4th. But it turned out I was covering a movement for RA and then our in-resident event at Lux in Lisbon and kind of writing a feature off the back of that. So I wasn't able to go. 
So I feel uh, pretty upset about this. Um, so decided to use a new podcast to talk about what a bad journalist I am and uh, tell you about some of the things I did find out when I went back a while ago and um, all the stuff that would have gone in the feature if it had have come to fruition. So I've never been to a God's Kitchen event and I'm sure a lot of our listeners haven't either. So can you maybe explain what it is and, and why it's special? Yeah, for sure. So um, probably a bit of context firstly. So in the height of the super club era, as I and others refer it to, in the late 90s and early 2000s, um, at the time when Ibiza was becoming a mainstream thing in the UK, you know, you'd see adverts for compilations on television and these sorts of things. And uh, dance music was generally having one of its uh, regular pop culture moments. Um, God's Kitchen was one of several big brands that were spread throughout the UK. So... Gatecrasher, I'd describe it as its rival, as club maybe some people have heard of, but I'm not sure that um, rival would be the right word. Um, everyone was like far too loved up to have uh, rivals at that time. Um, anyway, there were other trance and hard house nights like um, Sunder Central in Birmingham, which is one I went to a lot, uh, Slinky in Bournemouth, uh, Passion in Colville, Golden in Stoke, um, things like Frantic and the Gallery in London were also in this... Uh, sort of informal circuit. God's Kitchen was also the promoter behind the uh, Global Gathering Festival. It was kind of a big one in the Midlands, which ran until 2014. Um, so the first Global Gathering Festival, which took place in Stratford, um, Shakespeare's um, home hood, um, that was the first proper club um, event I ever went to. Um, and what, what year is this? So we're talking 2001. So I'm pretty sure I was, yeah, I would have been 17. So I would have, I would have snuck in. Um, anyway, the headliners were, I'm going to try and remember this. It was Judge Jules, um, Fergie, Ferry Corsten, uh, Armin Van Buren. And then there was like David Morales, Danny Rampling doing kind of a house thing. Lisa Lashes and Savage doing hard house. And then also Garage was at its commercial zenith at the time. So you had um, Artful Dodger, NJ Cole, Spoonie, Mikey B, EZ. Um, all holed up in an arena and then there was also a really gnarly drum and bass arena which just had like perspiration dripping from the tent and like the heavy fug of weed over it for the entire day. So I went, um, I had my tiny mind blown and when I turned 18 I started going to God's Kitchen uh, to their home uh, Code which was this uh, resplendent nightclub in Birmingham which later became Air. So me and my friends were living in um, nearby Leamington Spa. Um, I guess it's 40 minutes away on the train. So um, we take a train over from Birmingham on a Friday evening and then just battle all the way through the evening and take the first train uh, home in the morning. Why was a young Ryan Keeling drawn to the place? I guess it had everything I wanted and needed at that time. I'd been listening to this music in various forms for probably five years at that time. So on CD at home or? Yeah, CD at home, obviously compilations and mixed CDs were quite a big deal at the time. Probably more so compilations actually. But then also um, national radio, things like Radio One. And I was, you know, listening to the big dance shows, Judge Stools and Pete Tong and people like that. Um, so I was really chomping at the bit to experience this music in the club context. Going back to this um, super club thing, there was a real emphasis at the time over creating the ultimate clubbing experience. So you would be aiming for total immersion in production and spectacle and lights and lasers and all of these things. I mean, looking back at some like, you know, photos from from that era lasers seem to be a pretty big part of the equation oh lasers are massive i, I love them then and i still love them now oh, yeah same so the club itself um yeah was populated by what was known at the time as cyber kids cyber kids so so what's a what's yeah a so kid? a sort of how would i describe it sort of a hyper accelerated um, young, mainly breed of clubber, who I guess live on in candy ravers in the US. You know, the thing we associate with EDM, the beads and the, you know, the hair things and the extensions and the furry boots and all, all those sorts of things. Um, I never had the balls to do a full on cyber look. How um, far did you push it? Okay, so I went to, uh, I spiked my hair. 
I think there may have been blue bits in it. Uh, it certainly had glow sticks because everybody bloody had glow sticks at that time. And um, I think some of my clothes were like moderately outrageous, but I never shopped at Cyberdog in Camden, which was like the, you know, the, uh, the hub uh, for that look. I think one of the really key things for me for this part of the scene was just the sheer level of fanaticism, um, particularly with the likes of Gatecrasher and uh, God's Kitchen and Sunday Essential. I mean, we're talking people traveling vast distances, you know, relatively speaking for the UK to go uh, to these events and people are making like custom clothes you know with like god's kitchen logos and just like slogans on them and stuff and there was a fierce sense of community you know there really was a, a genuinely fierce sense of community it was incredibly powerful for um a young person like myself or you know the young people around me um i don't know but maybe been in margins of um other social structures in their life uh, maybe more generally hadn't found their place in life yet so um to have this like grounding force and this sense of uh, identity and um, shared values and all of these things that this kind of environment this music created it was uh, incredibly powerful I think we should probably get back to the piece at this point. So you went to Clash of the Gods in 2014. Uh, as a writer, what did you get from that experience? Um, well, I'll talk about what I got as a person, uh, <laughs> firstly. Um, Fair enough. Yeah, some bits of it were very poignant, very lovely, very enjoyable. Um, certain bits of it meant absolutely nothing to me. Certain bits, I guess, were somewhere in the middle. Musically speaking, uh, there wasn't a ton of nostalgia in the actual tracks that were played. Um, it was more the sensation of hearing uh, music that worked to trance's um, exaggerated arrangements. I know that the lineup was uh, very significant for uh, the modern trance scene, uh, but for me personally, there wasn't anyone playing aside from, I think, uh, Lange and Signum who were sort of famous and kicking around at the time that I was um, I was into the music. Um, so the headliners were Ali and Fila, um, Sean Tyas, who I think was playing with Lange and a couple others. Um, but the really big question going in for it for me was how I was going to respond to the music's uh, dynamics, you know, the, the trance pattern. So the speed of it, um, I don't know what it is, 135 to 140, like I'd have absolutely no problem with that. You know, that's still a, a tempo I rave at like, very often. Um, it was more in the incredibly earnest um, set of feelings, you know, and emotions that um, characterized the breakdowns. I wasn't sure how I was going to respond to. And then also what it would be like to be um, tethered to this sort of chasing the dragon idea where you're looking for the ultimate drop moment so every drops either bigger or different but it's all about this moment you know this moment of uh, tension release and sort of like ultimate dropness um so i would say that overall i succumbed to it way more than i was expecting maybe even um and you have to bear in mind that the production at these events is like pretty awe-inspiring you know, the lasers look so sick and like the whole um, control over the crowd from a production standpoint was incredibly impressive. Um, but I think what tipped it over the edge for me was just the sheer unbridled uh, enthusiasm of everyone who was there. Um, like people were fucking going for it, you know, in a way that I hadn't really experienced since my days of going to this club. Um, I actually pulled up my notes from my phone, you know, doing the, the kind of semi-drunk iPhone thing. And um, I wrote down things like, am I actually having a great time these days on my nights out? Question mark. Is refined taste conducive to a good time? Question mark. I'm feeling very uptight. Okay, so ju just on the verge of an uh, existential crisis. Yeah, I would, I would say healthily so. Yeah, healthily so. The other big thing I noted was there's no cyber kids there, um, which is sort of interesting, maybe surprising. Is it a case of like the cyber kids that had grown up and were like cybermen? <laughs> yeah, cybermen. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it was inevitable. People uh, people grew out of the uh, of the of the cyber thing, but um, the other kind of um, 
sad and maybe interesting thing was that people were no longer um, en masse putting their hands in the air in the breakdowns. Um, that was certainly something that was a big feature of the events when I was going before. Like absolutely everybody in the club would have their hands in the air during the breakdowns. But um, I'd say that was only a partial partial truth this, this time around. Um, but overall takeaways, I would say there were definitely some people who had been doing it since the early 2000s, you know, just telling from their uh, age and slightly haggard, uh, haggard appearances. Um, but yeah, the, the sense of devotion just um, clearly never left them. Um, one really nerdy detail that, that kind of put a dampener on it for me was that um, had to do with the production of the tracks. So everything felt um, very overcompressed in a way that I don't remember, or maybe it was just my rave ravaged ears telling me that everything was very overcompressed, but um, everything was also um, sidechain compressed. So this kind of feeling where it's sucking, you know, this kind of like Eric Pridd style, like sucking thing, but um, over the course of an evening that, uh, you know, the impact of that is, is, is certainly lost. Um, but one detail I did really like was that they had this enormous uh, God's Kitchen sign, which I remembered uh, from the early days there. Um, and they'd apparently carried this by hand from the old venue, you know, through the streets of Birmingham. That is uh, that is legit, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's pretty legit. Yeah, and it was um, it, it's just around the corner from the venue, to be fair. But yeah, they did they did uh, go the extra mile. And um, there was something about the typeface on the on the sign that um just really did it for me you know it was kind of goosebump inducing so what did you feel was still missing in terms of um stuff you wanted to gather for for this for this piece well i think it was a classic case of just um wanting more you know i wanted a bit more clear-headed thinking i also wanted to muse more on this idea of um our taste developing as I said, uh, many people probably have these journeys when they start out, um, you know, maybe they get going with um, poppy dance music onto trance, house, techno, ambient experimental, you know, maybe it levels off with a mixture of these things. But um, I guess I was interested in knowing on a sonic level why trance and similar styles are the first stepping stone. Now, what is it about these arpeggiated synth lines and these open filters and these drum rolls that mean that's, for many people, the first rung of the ladder, you know, onto different things? Um, and then I guess more simply, I just wanted to ask myself the question, this meant a lot to you at the time. This was an extremely significant part of your life. How, after 10 or more years, does it make you feel now? Yeah, I, I think the the question of taste in dance music's uh, a really interesting one. I mean, I don't think anyone should feel bad about the music they listened to growing up. Um, having said that, I definitely do feel bad about the music I listened to growing up. Um, but it's just human nature to maybe look back at your younger self um, and what you're wearing and what you were listening to and cringe a little bit. I think that's the that's your awkward phase of growing up. I was back in Australia, back in Adelaide recently, which is where I'm from, and I was looking through my old stuff and I found like this uh, CD of uh, Light Sound Dance by the Bang Gang DJs who I kind of grew up on, I guess. Um, and I was driving around, um, around Adelaide and I put it on and it definitely um, made me feel very, like there were sparks of nostalgia there. Um, but it didn't make me feel the, the way it did in 2006. Um, it's just taking that music for me, like removing it from the context of what else was going in my life when I was like in my early 20s in Adelaide. Um, it kind of made me think that was as part of what I was excited about um, as the, the music I was hearing in clubs. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It, it was all, it all blended together. It was all part of that experience. Well, I mean, when I look at it, um, you know, saying I was interested on this thing on a sonic level, um, you know, when I actually analyze it, I can remember the time where I went into the uh, record shop in my hometown and um, for whatever reason, I decided to listen to the five techno records that they had in there. One of them was uh, Robert Hood's Master Builder on, on Trezor, which was the first techno record I ever bought. But um, I made a realization almost immediately that I liked the speed and intensity of the music of Trance and Hardhouse that I was listening to, but maybe I didn't need a breakdown every four or five minutes. You know, maybe this thing with, um, you know, just the elements, you know, just those drums without the bells and whistles was going to absolutely do it for me. So it was a case of just a more, you were kind of searching for a more stripped back kind of sound. 
Yeah, very possibly, very possibly. But I think as well, um, you know, going back to the sort of motivation surrounding it, I'm, I'm very stubborn in that I never want to write anything off. Like I will never sit here and say trance is shit. That, that kind of offends me. And, um, you know, when people sort of um, disavow the things they were listening to in the past, that's always like rankled me. Do you think like the trance, the techno thing is like a well-trodden path? I mean, you lived in Berlin for, for time, you've done a few laps around Bergheim, like you've spoken to people. Um, did you have you heard similar stories, or do you feel like yours is sort of original? I'd say I'd say so. Yeah, I can I can bring a couple without without mentioning them by name. I can definitely bring a, a couple of um, examples to mind. So another thing for me personally would be um, analyzing hard house. So it's another um, genre that's based on a similar format to trance, but instead of the kind of emotive elements, they'll do things like hardcore samples. Now I was able to trace these things back because at the time I didn't bloody know that they were riffing on old records I had no idea so I went back to the source and these things were very interesting and I know you've said to me uh, in the past that there was lots of the uh, stuff you were listening to growing up that had these disco samples that you didn't necessarily know were disco samples but yeah exactly and I mean yeah the a, a tune that always springs to mind is um Patrick 122 by by Mr Wazo which I was like I absolutely loved when I was when I was younger, and I mean that's like that is basically a, a disco edit, um, and like you go back and you know you listen to Gary's Gang do it at the disco, and you're like right that's that's the part of the tune that I really like, and then it's getting diving into disco is like the natural next step, um, so it's all about yeah it's the entry point isn't it? So that was the second edition of the hour. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next month with another blend of documentaries, discussion and interviews. You can find RA's talk podcast, The Hour and The Exchange on residentadvisor.net and on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange.